you have your Bibles with you down here, I um, invite you to turn to Psalm 44. As we are going to pick up at verse 17, last month we dealt with the first 16 verses of Psalm 44. It's just long enough that it uh, made sense to divide it up. And so we'll be dealing with, uh, uh, just briefly here, meditating on uh, uh, Psalm 44, verses 17 through 26. And last time, uh, we considered those first 16 verses, and in the first eight verses of this psalm, the psalmist recounted the Lord's past faithfulness to Israel in regard to their military power. They had been successful because uh, the Lord had blessed them. Uh, he had defeated the, the enemies of Israel and given them the land of Canaan to settle in. And though uh, they had fought and won their battles, they did not do so by their own strength, but only by the strength of the Lord, by the mighty hand of God. But as the psalmist writes this psalm, he's actually lamenting a recent defeat. In the scriptures we find uh, many cases in which uh, the Lord's people would lose a battle. Uh, they would lose a war, perhaps. Uh, they would even be conquered for a time by their enemies. And uh, this was almost always because Israel had been unfaithful to God. They had turned aside to other gods and to all manner of wickedness. But as we pick up today with verse 16, we Note that, uh, really, verse 17, sorry, that we note that the inspired psalmist here declares that such unfaithfulness is not the case in this situation. They've suffered a defeat, but not as a direct result of Israel's unfaithfulness. Like righteous Job, the psalmist here is having difficulty understanding why God had brought this calamity on his people. And last time we noted some reasons that Scripture says the Lord brings hardship on his people. Uh, sometimes it is because we have fallen short, but it can be to show his strength and our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12:9 says uh, Jesus says to Paul, "My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." It can be as Peter says in 1 Peter 1:6 1, and 7 to show the tested genuineness of our faith as we as the Lord brings trials into our lives, we find that as our faith survives the trial, we know that our faith then was genuine and God will bring hardship upon us, afflictions, just to show us that. It could be to build our character, to make us more like Christ, as Paul says in Romans 5, 3 and 4. So keep those kinds of things in mind as we consider this last section of Psalm 44. Now the psalmist writes here, again beginning at verse 17, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. Well, usually it's because we've forgotten you, right? But here he says, we didn't forget you in this case. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. So this is in a, a generation that's been generally faithful. The psalmist is saying, this is a time of general faithfulness. So why are we losing? Why, O oh God, have you brought this upon us? And it's legitimate for us to ask those kinds of questions, but always recognizing that God does these things for good purposes, and we need to be examining ourselves and seeing why it might be that he's brought a calamity upon us. 
We might think of a time like the reign of Hezekiah, when he reformed the worship of Israel. Hezekiah is considered a righteous king, and that generation, at least during his reign, was considered a generally righteous generation. It was a generally righteous time. Uh, Idolatry and false worship were done away with in Israel. Yet, in Hezekiah's reign, the Assyrians invaded. They destroyed most of the cities of Judah. They besieged Jerusalem. And only by God's direct intervention was Jerusalem spared. The psalmist here notes they have been defeated in open battle, their bodies left to the beasts of the field to devour, and he doesn't know if there's any unrighteousness that brought this upon them. Again, another example might be Josiah, who was a generally righteous king, and yet unwisely he went out unnecessarily to battle the Egyptians and died in that battle. Maybe this psalm was written at a time such as that. But the psalmist here in verse 19 says, Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. They've been left, the bodies are left in the field, as it were, to be devoured by jackals. They were somewhere in the wilderness. They've been broken in the place of jackals, covered with the shadow of death. He could understand this if Israel was idolatrous at the time. But it's a time that that's not apparently the case. In verses 20 and 21, he says, If we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread our hands out to a foreign God, would not God discover this? In other words, would not God make this plain? Would he not, it's not, he's not saying discover it as in God would figure it out as if he didn't already know it. But uncover. Display it. Show it as a fact. He says, For he knows the secrets of our heart, or the secrets of the heart. So God knows the secrets of the heart. He can unveil them for all the world to see. But the psalmist is saying, apparently that's not what's going on here. I can't see what we as your people would have done to bring this upon us. So again, think of him as someone like righteous Job, who's just wanting to know from God, why has this happened? Not that he's questioning God in terms of God's righteousness to do this, but that he's wanting to know how he can be taught by God in this situation. So rather than for lack of faithfulness, it's actually because of faithfulness sometimes that God's people suffer. The world kills God's people because they are faithful to God. Verse 22 is quoted by Paul in Romans 8.36 to describe the situation of the Christian in a time of persecution and really just generally in this fallen world. He says, yet for your sake for God's sake, right? We are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's often how the world treats and considers God's people. We're like sheep to be slaughtered. It's a rare occasion in church history that we get to live in the relative peace that we have in the West for the last few centuries. And as the culture turns more in our generation against the gospel, uh, don't be surprised if persecution comes upon us in more harsh ways. It certainly does upon our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, in many lands where it's actually illegal. Even if it's not illegal to be a Christian, it's illegal for them to fulfill the Great Commission and preach to their neighbors. In places like China, North Korea is considered the worst place in the world by many to be a Christian, and it's it baffles me that, that uh, 
humanly speaking, there could be a Christian in North Korea, but apparently there are some, and that's only by the power of God that the church could possibly survive. As some of us were talking about yesterday, Steve was was uh, telling telling us uh, or reminding us during our prayer time that uh, we had missionaries. Our denomination had missionaries in China, and uh, when the Japanese drove out uh, missionaries from Manchuria, and after them the communists drove them out from the rest of China, we didn't know what would happen. And yet the church actually grew and flourished. By the time Western missionaries could go back to China, they found a thriving church in many places. That's only by the power of God that that can happen. That affliction that was brought on the church in China did not come because of its unfaithfulness, nor did it come as a means of suppressing the church. Every effort of man to destroy the church actually helped it grow. This is the general condition of the church in the age until Christ returns. It's actually unusual for us to be at a time when we're not troubled by the world. We all experience some troubles from the world if we're faithful. And the more faithful, the more Christ-like you'll be, uh, the more the more trouble you might experience in this world. But generally in church history, there is always a, an effort by the world to suppress the gospel. And it can get, in fact, to be violent. There are ups and downs. There are times of revival and general progress of the gospel. And I believe it does generally, uh, it does generally progress. And I believe it will continue to do so. As Christ said, uh, he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But there will always be those times interspersed with the backlash from the world. Because the world hates the success of the church. The world hates Christ and all of his servants. And because of that hatred, we can expect those kinds of things to continue. To happen periodically. Until that final rebellion and Christ's final defeat of all of his and our enemies. In the meantime, we know that the martyrs cry out, as Revelation 6.10 says, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Our trials ultimately drive us to depend on God and to yearn for the return of Christ. So if you want to find a reason for being afflicted as one of God's people, there's a big one. God is allowing, and in fact ordaining this, so you will yearn for him. So you will be like John at the end of the book of Revelation saying, Even so, come Lord Jesus. You'll be eager for it. Though we know he's biding his time for his own good purposes... Sometimes, from our perspective, it seems like God is doing nothing. that He's at rest, but he, in fact, is not at rest. He does not slumber or sleep. But the psalmist prays at the end of this psalm, beginning in verse 23, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Well, of course, we know literally he does not slumber or sleep, but he's, he's asking, why are you not acting right now? And he's praying that God would act. Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. 
Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Notice he isn't saying, for our sake, because we're such wonderful people. But for, your, for the sake of your steadfast love, for the sake of your covenant love upon your people, come and do this. And that's an appropriate prayer for all of God's people to offer up to him. When we're afflicted, ask him to act and to rise up and to redeem us, to, to purchase us out of that affliction, as it were. Not just so life will be comfortable for us, but so that his covenant love can be displayed. Indeed, for the sake of his steadfast love, he has redeemed. The psalmist prayed this some hundreds of years before the time of Christ. And Christ came. And Christ died for the sins of his people. And he is risen today and alive now and reigning from the right hand of the Father. And he will return to judge the earth. And so, like the Apostle John, we can say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's do that now as we sing the last part of this psalm. Let's turn our psalters to Psalm 44, selection C is in Christ. 44C. And let's sing praise to God. Let's stand together as we're able as we conclude our service this afternoon. 44C.